Part Four of Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. He nodded. Prince Travon, how soon do you estimate that the student procession will arrive here? He asked. They're coming on foot, Your Majesty. I give them an hour at least. Well, Prince Travon, will you have one of your officers see that the public address screen in front is ready? I want to talk to them when they arrive. And meanwhile, I'll want to talk to Chancellor Kane, Professor Dandrick, Professor Fares, and Colonel Handrasan together. And Count Thomson, too. Prince Ganze, will you please screen him and invite him here immediately? Now, Your Majesty? At first the Prime Minister was trying to suppress a look of incredulity. Then he was trying to keep from showing comprehension. Yes, Your Majesty, at once. He frowned slightly when he saw two of the security guard officers salute Prince Trevon instead of the Emperor before going away. Then he turned and hurried toward the octagon tower. The officer who had gone to the air car to use the radio returned and reported that Colonel Hondrasan was bringing the Chancellor and both professors from the university in his command car, having anticipated that they would be wanted. Paul nodded in pleasure. "'You have a good man there, Prince,' he said. "'Keep an eye on him.' "'I know it, Your Majesty. To tell the truth, it was he who organized this march. I thought they'd be better employed coming here to petition you than milling around the university getting into further mischief.' The other officer also returned, bringing a portable viewscreen with him on a contragravity lifter. By this time the bench of counselors and the three off-planet guests had become anxious and left the luncheon pavilion in a body. The counselors were looking about uneasily, noticing the black-uniformed security guards who had left the troop carrier and were taking positions by squads all around the Emperor. First Citizen Yago and King Ranulf and Lord Koref also seemed uneasy. They were avoiding the proximity of Paul as though he had the green death. The viewscreen came on, and in it the city, as seen from an air car at two thousand feet, spread out with the palace visible in the distance, the golden pile of the octagon tower jutting up from it. The car carrying the pickup was behind the procession which was moving toward the palace along one of the broad skyways, with gendarmes and security guards leading, following, and flanking. There were a few imperial and planetary and school flags, but none of the quantity-made banners and placards which always betray a planned demonstration. Prince Gonze had been gone for some time now. When he returned he drew Paul aside. "'Your Majesty,' he whispered softly, "'I tried to summon army troops, but it'll be hours before any can get here, and the militia can't be mobilized in anything less than a day. There are only five thousand army regulars on Odin now, anyhow. And half of them officers and non-coms of skeleton regiments. Like the Navy, the army had been scattered all over the Empire, on Behemoth and Amida and Zepeptetek and Astari and Jontoheim, in response to calls for support from security. "'Let's have a look at this rioting, Prince Stravon. 
One of the less decrepit counselors, a retired general, said, "'I want to see how your people are handling it.' The officers who had come with Prince Travan consulted briefly, and then got another pickup on the screen. This must have been a regular public pickup on the front of a tall building. It was a couple of miles farther away. The palace was visible only as a tiny glint from the octagon tower on the skyline. Half a dozen security air cars were darting about, two of them chasing a battered civilian vehicle and firing at it. On rooftops and terraces and skyways little clumps of security guards were skirmishing, dodging from cover to cover, and sometimes individuals or groups in civilian clothes fired back at them. There was a surprising absence of casualties. "'Your Majesty!' the old general hissed in a scandalized whisper. "'That's nothing but a big fake. Look, they're all firing blanks. The rifles hardly kick at all, and there's too much smoke for propellant powder.' "'I noticed that. This riot must have been carefully prepared long in advance. Yet the student riot seemed to have been entirely spontaneous. That puzzled him.' He wished he knew just what Yorn Travan was up to. "'Just keep quiet about it,' he advised. More aircars were arriving, big and luxurious, emblazoned with the arms of some of the most distinguished families in Asgard. One of the first to let down bore the device of Douglas, and from it the Minister of Economics, the Minister of Education, and a couple of other ministers alighted. Count Douglas went at once to Prince Travan, drawing him away from King Ranulf and Lord Koreff, and talking to him rapidly and earnestly. Count Thompson approached at a swift half-run. "'Save your majesty,' he greeted breathlessly. "'What's going on, sir? We heard something about some petty brawl at the university that Prince Ganze had become alarmed about, but now there seemed to be fighting all over the city. I never saw anything like it. On the way here we had to go up to ten thousand feet to get over a battle, and there's a vast crowd on the Avenue of the Arts, and—he looked at the security guards—your majesty, just what is going on?" Great and frightening changes, Count Thompson started. He must have been to a sigh medium, too. But I think the Empire is going to survive them. There may even be a few improvements before things are done. A blue-uniformed gendarme officer approached Prince Travan, drawing him away from Count Douglas and speaking briefly to him. The Minister of Security nodded, then turned back to the Minister of Economics. They talked for a few moments longer, then clasped hands, and Travan left Douglas with his face wreathed in smiles. The gendarme officer accompanied him as he approached. Your Majesty, this is Colonel Handerson, the officer who handled the affair at the university. And a very good piece of work, Colonel. He shook hands with him. Don't be surprised if it's remembered next Honors Day. Did you bring Kane and the two professors? They're down on the lower landing stage, Your Majesty. We're delaying the students to give Your Majesty time to talk to them. We'll see them now. My study will do. The officer saluted and went away. He turned to Count Thompson. That's why I asked Prince Gunze to invite you here. This thing's become too public to be ignored. 
Some sort of action will have to be taken. I'm going to talk to the students. I want to find out just what happened before I commit myself to anything. Well, gentlemen, let's go to my study." Count Tomson looked around, bewildered. But I don't understand. He fell into step with Paul and the Minister of Security. A squad of security guards fell in behind them. I don't understand what's happening, he complained. An emperor about to have his throne yanked out from under him, and a minister about to stage a coup d'etat, taking time out to settle a trifling academic squabble. One thing he did understand, though, was that the Ministry of Education was getting some very bad publicity at a time when it could be least afforded. Prince Travon was telling him about the hooligans' attack on the marching students, and that worried him even more. Non-working hooligans acted as voting-block bosses ordered. Voting-block bosses acted on orders from the political manipulators of cartels and pressure groups, and action downward through the non-workers was usually accompanied by action upward through influences to which ministers were sensitive. There were a dozen security guards in black tunics, and as many household thorns, in red kilts in the hall outside the study, fraternizing amicably. They hurried apart and formed two ranks, and the Thorin officer with him saluted. Going into the study, he went to his desk. Count Tomson lit a cigarette and puffed nervously, and sat down as though he were afraid the chair would collapse under him. Prince Travon sank into another chair and relaxed, closing his eyes. There was a bit of wafer on the floor by Paul's chair, dropped by the little dog that morning. He stooped and picked it up, laying it on his desk, and sat looking at it until the door screen flashed and buzzed. Then he pressed the release button. Colonel Hondrasan ushered the three university men in ahead of him. Kane, with a florid, arrogant face that showed worry under the arrogance. Dandrick, gray-haired and stoop-shouldered, looking irritated. Fares, young, with a scrubby red mustache, looking bellicose. He greeted them collectively and invited them to sit, and there was a brief uncomfortable silence which everyone expected him to break. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, "'we want to get the facts about this affair in some kind of order. I wish you'd tell me, as briefly and as completely as possible, what you know about it.' "'There's the man who started it,' Kane declared, pointing at Forres. "'Professor Forres had nothing to do with it.' Colonel Henderson stated flatly. He and his wife were in the apartment packing to move out when it started. Somebody called him and told him about the fighting at the stadium, and he went there at once to talk his students into dispersing. By that time the situation was completely out of hand. He could do nothing with the students. Well, I think we ought to find out, first of all, why Professor Ferris was dismissed, Prince Travon said. It will take a good deal to convince me that any teacher able to inspire such loyalty in his students is a bad teacher or deserves dismissal. As I understand, Paul said, the dismissal was the result of a disagreement between Professor Ferres and Professor Dandrick about an experiment on which they were working. I believe 
an experiment to fix more exactly the velocity of accelerated subnucleonic particles, beta micropositos, wasn't it, Chancellor Kane? Kane looked at him in surprise. Your Majesty, I know nothing about that. Professor Dandrick is head of the physics department. He came to me about six months ago and told me that, in his opinion, this experiment was desirable. I simply deferred to his judgment and authorized it. "'Your Majesty has just stated the purpose of the experiment,' Dandrick said. "'For centuries there have been inaccuracies in mathematical descriptions of subnucleonic events, and this experiment was undertaken in the hope of eliminating these inaccuracies.' He went into a lengthy mathematical explanation. "'Yes, I understand that, Professor. But just what was the actual experiment in terms of physical operations?' Dandrick looked helpless for a moment. Forrest, who had been choking back a laugh, interrupted. "'Your Majesty, we were using the big turbo-linear accelerator to project fast micropositos down an evacuated tube one kilometer in length, and clocking them with light, the velocity of which has been established almost absolutely. I will say that with respect to the light, there were no observable inaccuracies at any time, and until the micropositos were accelerated to 16.06754333 and one-third times light speed, they registered much as expected. Beyond that velocity, however, the target for the micropositos began registering impacts before the source registered emission, although the light target was still registering normally. I notified Professor Dandrick about this, and you notified him? Wasn't he present at the time? No, Your Majesty. Your Majesty, I am head of the physics department of the university. I have too much administrative work to waste time on the technical aspects of experiments like this, Dandrick interjected. I understand. Professor Ferres was actually performing the experiment. You told Professor Dandrick what had happened. What then? Why, Your Majesty, he simply declared that the limit of accuracy had been reached, and ordered the experiment dropped. He then reported the highest reading before this anticipation effect was observed as the newly established limit of accuracy in measuring the velocity of accelerated micropositos, and said nothing whatever in his report about the anticipation effect. I read a summary of the report. Why, Professor Dandrick, did you omit mentioning this slightly unusual effect? Why, because the whole thing was utterly preposterous, that's why, Dandrick barked, and then hastily added, Your Imperial Majesty. He turned and glared at Ferres. Professors do not glare at galactic emperors. Your Majesty, the limit of accuracy had been reached. After that it was only to be expected that the apparatus would give erratic reports. It might have been expected that the apparatus would stop registering increased velocity relative to the light-speed standard, or that it would begin registering disproportionately, Forrest said. But, Your Majesty, I'll submit that it was not to be expected that it would register impacts before emissions. And I'll add this. After registering this slight apparent jump into the future, there was no proportionate increase in anticipation with further increase in acceleration. I wanted to find out why. 
But when Professor Dandrick saw what was happening, he became almost hysterical, and ordered the accelerator shut down as though he were afraid it would blow up in his face. "'I think it has blown up in his face,' Prince Stravon said quietly. "'Professor, have you any theory or supposition or even any wild guess as to how this anticipation effect occurs?' "'Yes, Your Highness. I suspect that the apparent anticipation is simply an observational illusion, similar to the illusion of time-reversal experienced when it was first observed, though not realized, that positrons sometimes exceeded light-speed. "'Why, that's what I've been saying all along,' Dandrick broke in. "'The whole thing is an illusion to—' "'To having reached the limit of observational accuracy. I understand, Professor Dandrick.' Go on, Professor Ferris. I think that beyond sixteen point zero six seven five four three 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 and one-third times light-speed, the micropositos cease to have any velocity at all, velocity being defined as rate of motion in four-dimensional space-time. I believe they moved through the three spatial dimensions without moving at all in the fourth temporal dimension. They made that kilometer from source to target literally in nothing flat, instantaneity. That must have been the first time he had actually come out and said it. Dandrick jumped to his feet with a cry that was just short of being a shriek. He's crazy, Your Majesty. You mustn't. That is, well, I mean, please, Your Majesty, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's raving. He knows perfectly well what he's saying, and it probably scares him more than it does you. The difference is that he's willing to face it, and you aren't. The difference was that Forrest was a scientist, and Dandrick was a science teacher. To Forrest a new door had opened, the first new door in eight hundred years. To Dandrick. It threatened invalidation of everything he had taught since the morning he had opened his first class. He could no longer say to his pupils, "'You are here to learn from me.' He would have to say more humbly, "'We are here to learn from the universe.' It had happened so many times before, too. The comfortable and established universe had fitted all the known facts and then new facts had been learned that wouldn't fit it. The third planet of the Sol system had once been the center of the universe, and then Terra and Sol, and even the galaxy, had been forced to abdicate centricity. The atom had been indivisible until somebody divided it. There had been intangible substance that had permeated the universe because it had been necessary for the transmission of light until it was demonstrated to be unnecessary and non-existent. And the speed of light had been the ultimate velocity once, and could be exceeded no more than an atom could be divided. And light speed had been constant, regardless of distance from source, and the universe, to explain certain observed phenomena, had been believed to be expanding simultaneously in all directions and the things that had happened in psychology when psi phenomena had become too obvious to be shrugged away. And then, when Dr. Dendrick ordered you to drop this experiment just when it was becoming interesting, you refused? 
Your Majesty, I couldn't stop. Not then. But Dr. Dandrick ordered the apparatus dismantled and scrapped, and I'm afraid I lost my head. Told him to punch his silly old face in, for one thing. You admit that? Chancellor Kane cried. I think you showed admirable self-restraint in not doing it. Did you explain to Chancellor Kane the importance of this experiment? I tried to, Your Majesty, but he simply wouldn't listen. But, Your Majesty, Kane expostulated, Professor Dendrick is head of the department, and one of the foremost physicists of the Empire, and this young man is only one of the junior assistant professors. Is it even a full professor? And he got his degree from some school away off planet, University of Bratterton on Gimli. Were you a pupil of Professor von Evrot? Prince Travon asked sharply. Why, yes, sir. I. Ah, no wonder, Dandrick crowed. Your Majesty, that man's an out and out charlatan. He was kicked out of the university here ten years ago and I'm surprised he could even get on the faculty of a school like Granerton on a planet like Gimli. "'Why, you stupid old fool!' Forrest yelled at him. "'You aren't enough of a physicist to oil robots in von Everett's lab.' "'There, your majesty,' Kane said. "'You see how much respect for authority this hooligan has.' "'On Aditya, such would be unthinkable.' On Aditya everybody respects authority, whether it's respectable or not. Count Tomson laughed, and he realized that he must have spoken aloud. Nobody else seemed to have gotten the joke. Well, how about the riot now? he asked. Who started that? Colonel Hunderson made an investigation on the spot, Prince Dravon said. May I suggest that we hear his report? Yes, indeed. Colonel? End of part four.